Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Laura, for going. Laura is now our ninth person from our congregation who's decided to go globally in this in our in our uh, world and from our church. So what an honor it is to send people and commission people. Hey, I just again want to follow up on ShareFest. This is this week is the deadline for it, so make sure you sign up. I cannot tell you from my perspective a more helpful um, opportunity for our church to have so many inroads to so many places in our city than one morning a week for, for uh, uh, actually one morning during the whole year where we can kind of show up. And uh, so before, before this day is over, make sure you go online and sign up so we can prepare for you. We're beginning a new series, and if you have your Bibles, open up with me to First Thessalonians. It's in the New Testament, small book. It's a letter from Paul to the church in Thessalonica. Have you ever visited a place you want to go back? Why do you want to go back to a place? What makes a place special? Well, some places are like beautiful and I've gone on vacations where there's just been awesome places and like my mother-in-law has, has uh, funded the Hishma family to go on vacations from time to time with her and we've had great, beautiful experiences and I'd love to go back because those are awesome places because they're beautiful. Other times there's like defining moments. You make a decision in a place, you never forget it and you all, whenever you go back there, you remember a decision you made. Like uh, one of my friends who used to play on the Duke basketball play uh, team, and uh, we went to Duke University, and he introduced me to Coach K, and we were walking and talking along, and all of a sudden he stops right in front of his dorm, and he goes, right there, Joe, right there, see that? And he's like 6'5", and he's booming voice, so everyone kind of goes, see that place? And everyone stops and looks at this place. And he goes, that's the place I decided to give Jesus my life. Where I just said, no, I, I'm not going to just know about him, I'm going to pursue him right there, that place! And everyone around us is kind of looking, because that was awesome. It, it was a place he'll never forget. And you may, your college may be like that. You may have a, a moment that was a defining moment, a decision in your life that you love to go back to. I think we also like to go back to those places where we love, where we've been loved. Like grandma's house. I remember both my grandmas. One was from Germany, and so when I walked into her house, I smelled the German food, and I could, I could not get away from that. And then, and then my other grandma's house was from the Middle East, and that was all that Arabic food. And, and they were just, they had these like double-jointed hips that could just move from the refrigerator to the table. Sit down, Joy. Sit down, Habibi. Let me give you some food. And I would just, I, those were the places, you can even smell them and remember those places, and you, you, you remember them. Well, there was a place like that with the Apostle Paul. It was called the church in Thessalonica. Current day, the city is called Thessaloniki. It's the second largest city in Greece. That's where it is on our map there. And uh, actually, the temperature is about the same there as it is here today. And it's a uh, beautiful city. It's a seaport, but it's not just a seaport. All land transportation routes under Alexander the Great, when the city was founded in 315, it continued on through the Roman Empire. It was a, it was a very, very important city. Here's kind of a picture, a present-day picture of it. Out in the distance is Mount Olympus. And if you know Greek mythology, you know how important that mountain is. It's about 10,000 feet above sea level, rising right up from sea level. That was a place that they believed the gods resided. So it was a superstitious place. There were, there were also more secular people, and there were also sincere God-seekers in the city. We learn about this city in Acts chapter 17 when Paul on his second missionary trip with, uh, with Silas and Timothy went 
to this city and went right to the synagogue. Why did they go to the synagogue? Because that was Paul's background. He was Jewish and he knew the Old Testament scripture. He had been studying them since he was a child and he had been discipled in the Old Testament scriptures, but with a new twist that Jesus was the Messiah. And for three weeks, he went down the Sabbath to the synagogues and he said this, the Messiah, as the scriptures say, had to suffer and he had to die and he had to rise from the dead. I don't know where he went. Acts 17 doesn't say that, but I bet you he went to Isaiah 53 where it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way and the Lord God put the iniquity of us on him. He was like a a sheep going going to the slaughter and and by his stripes were healed. Or maybe he went to to Psalm chapter 22 where it's a messianic Psalm of Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're not told exactly, but he he shared the Old Testament scriptures. And when he shared it, he said the Messiah had to suffer. The Messiah had to die. The Messiah had to rise from the dead. Jesus suffered. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the grave and he put them together and he said, Jesus is the Messiah. And they believed they believed. Many people believed. I like how Luke represents it in, Luke se- in uh, Acts 17. And not a few women believed, which means a whole bunch of people believed. And uh, so the gospel took root. But it wasn't long until the Jews became jealous. They incited a mob and they literally turned people against them. And Paul had to escape fleeing for his life. And he goes to a place called Berea. And Berea was 40 miles away and he preached the same gospel in a synagogue in Berea. And many people came to Christ. But the Jews from Thessalonica came to Berea and chased him out of Berea. And so he never had a chance chance to put down roots. He never had a chance to help develop their faith, to help lead that church in Thessalonica. So he always wondered about unfinished business. He always wondered and had a longing to return. Because they were in an early stage of their faith. He wondered, did they walk away? Were they in, a, in an area of suffering and affliction where he literally had to run for his life? Did they keep hanging on to the hand of Jesus or did they walk away? And so later he sends Timothy. Timothy goes to Thessalonica and, gives, and, and sees the church and comes back to Paul. And he says, Paul, rather than just surviving, Thessalonica is thriving. They're growing and they're maturing. And Paul, just overwhelmed, writes this letter back to the church in Thessalonica. Look at what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what he remembered there, he would reinforce in them. And look at the three words he uses to describe them. He says this, we remember about you the work of faith, so faith, your labor of love, love, and your steadfastness or your endurance of hope. Let's talk about these. I think they're important. It's what he remembered. He remembered that when he presented the gospel and he shared that Jesus was the Messiah, that they turned from their way to the true and living God. He saw that, that, that turning to God before his very eyes and he celebrated it. He saw that they had so many options of God's that when he presented Jesus, 
they finally came to rest. They didn't have to worry any longer. Were they good enough? Did they do enough good works? Were the gods upset with them? Were the gods pleased with them? They found out through Jesus Christ that they were fully accepted and loved by their heavenly father. Some of you can celebrate a faith like that. You've turned from your way. Some of you grew up in churches that said you need to be here. If you're not here, you're going to hell. If you're, then you got to be good. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you're going to be good. But if they don't, then look out. Just say these prayers, do all these things, and maybe you can atone for your sins. And boy, isn't it a comfort, isn't it a joy to come to Jesus and realize that his work was already completed? He doesn't need any of us to, to, to be perfect because he was perfect. He lived a perfect life we couldn't live. And he died on a cross to pay a price we couldn't pay. And he rose again on the third day. He celebrated their faith. Secondly, they were a labor of love. He saw in them a labor of love for Christ, for Paul, for each other. And you know what? When you're loved in a place, you never forget it. You never forget it. You always remember it. On the other hand, when you're rejected in a place or when you're questioned in a place or when people are suspicious of you, you never want to go back to those places. That, that's why none of us want to go back to the junior high cafeteria, right? Yeah, because am I good enough? Am I going to drop my play? I tripped. Oh, no. What do the girls think of me? All those questions are yet just kind of swirling in the mind. And God bless you, junior high students, if you're here or if you work in a junior high cafeteria. But I can't walk by one without my heart rate going up because I'm still nervous around those places. Thessalonica was a place of love and then of hope. They had an expectant, persistent hope in them amidst affliction and suffering. See, hope tends to fade in time, and it also tends to fade when there's difficult times. You tend to lose perspective, and you move into despair, but not them. Not Thessalonica. They were hopeful people. You know what? You tend to want to return to places that are hopeful, where people have a good outlook in the future, have a confidence for the future. It doesn't mean that everything is rosy around them, but it means they have a hope in future. Now look at what Paul does with these. Faith. Faith in the past completed work of Christ. Love. Love in the present for God, for each other, and for the gospel. And then hope. A hope for the future. He blends all the dimensions of time together. And, ha- and, and thanks to the Lord for how they have endured through affliction to see and expect the return of Christ. Faith, love, and hope. These are three pillars of the church. Paul would develop them in 1 Corinthians 13. All these gifts will fade, but these will remain. Faith, hope, and love. And and when they are in the church, people want to come back. When these, I've been involved in a lot of churches. And when there's faith without love, look out. There's a lot of preaching at... But there's not a lot of preaching with. And that's why we as God's church need to balance these three pillars. Faith, love, and hope. Faith in the past work of Christ. Love for each other in the present and hope for the future. Now, let's continue reading in verse 4. Paul's going to reflect then on how the gospel moved to them, in them, and from them. Look at that and listen for that as I read verse 4. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full, uh, full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among for you for your sake. 
And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we need not say anything. Let's pause on this because he's going to take a look at the gospel. And this is the movement of the gospel. It comes to us, it moves in us and transforms us, and then it moves from us into other people's lives. Look at how the gospel came to them. It said it came in word, it came in power, it came in the Holy Spirit with great conviction. That's how the gospel comes. It's not just the spoken gospel that has power. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. God is at work. The same God who chose them and loved them is the God who is working to bring about the gospel. It requires someone, though, to preach it. How will they hear unless someone preaches it, Paul asks in Romans? We're called to do that. We're called to go to people. And Paul went to them. If he would have gone to them, it wouldn't have been in them. Now, I'm certain that someone else would have, would have preached it, but he got to be a part of the gospel to the church in Thessalonica. Secondly, Christ is in you. It's, it's where they received it. They didn't just hear it. They received it in their lives amidst affliction and persecution. But they received it with two things that are mentioned here. Joy and then obedience because they became an example of Paul and of Christ, most importantly. They started reflecting Christ in their lives. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel says, this is not your work. This is God's work in you. The gospel says, you're nothing special, but you're extremely loved by God. Why? Because of his grace, not your performance. The gospel doesn't allow us in to, to have a higher opinion of ourselves than we ought. It holds us into humility, but it also gives us the confidence that we're loved by God. And then Christ from you. The word of the Lord sounded forth from them. It's that sounded forth literally in the Greek is gonged from you. It was like someone just hitting a gong and it reverberating. And you know, isn't this what the gospel needs to be? We don't need to insulate the gospel and soundproof the gospel as it hits our lives. It needs to reflect off of our lives into the people around us. And what did he say? We're around them. Well, that whole region in Macedonia and Achaia, and then even expounds it even further everywhere. So I don't even have to write you on this stuff. You got this covered. The gospel's moving from you. It's resounding. It's reverberated. It's being reflected from you. But then it was also a gospel that was received. Look at how he describes their reception of the gospel. Verse 9 and 10. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's three things that he mentions, and I think it's important that we go through of what happened when they received the gospel. And if you're here and you're searching for truth this morning, it's my prayer. And as I was praying, I was just praying for you. I don't know your name, but I... I know what God might be doing in your life and I know my, what, where you might be. And it's my prayer that you would receive the gospel just like the church in Thessalonica received the gospel. 
Now, if you're here and you know Jesus and you've been walking with Jesus, you're also, this is also going to relate to you because there are a lot of options as the church in Thessalonica had to serve other gods and to be distracted by other idols, whether covert or overt in our lives. And we have to always keep Jesus as the front person, as the source and center of our lives. Jesus is the single most important relationship in our lives. Paul reminds us that even the day you received him, you certainly you received his work, but you continue to receive his way in our lives. Look at one of the things. There's three. I'll, I'll give all three, but here's the first one. There was a decisive turning to God from idols. Thessalonica was a center for polytheism. They had a temple prostitution, which they merged the worship of gods with, with sex. And boy, did they make a lot of money doing that. We don't do that. We're much too sophisticated for prostitution these days. But they did because they were ancient. And they did. They had overt gods that they'd line up. They'd have a god for their health, a god for sports, a god for good luck, a god for business, a god for their family. And what it's like a medicine cabinet in their home. They just, whatever their day was, whatever was happening, oh, that god will help us. So we'll pray to this god to that day. And when the gospel came to them, it would be easy just to stack Jesus next to the other gods. Okay, just like in India today, when you present the gospel, they go, okay, I love Jesus because I, I got him. He'd just be another, we collect gods in this house. So he's a collector's item. No, Paul said, no, he's the one and only. You need to turn from all the other idols to serve the, the living and true God. This word for turn is uh, the Greek word epistrepho. And I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but it literally means a turning away, a literal turning of your body from one direction to the next. Luke would use it a whole bunch in the book of Acts. He would use it to describe someone's coming to Christ by turning from darkness to light, by repenting, turning to God from your sins. Another place he says that it's turning from vain things to a living God, things that are dead to someone who's living. And here Paul uses that word to turn to God from idols. John Stott says these three things are the most complete description of conversion in the New Testament. And he starts out and kind of elaborates. He says, look at how Paul describes idols. Idols are dead. God is living. Idols are false. God is true. Idols are many. God is one. Idols are creatures or created things or manufactured things. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. Idols are visible. God is invisible. Why does he want to be like that? Because whenever you make an idol, you reduce your God. And that's why God says, you will have no other gods before me. And that's why you should not make any graven images to your God. Because you, you wanted him to be glorified, multiplied, not reduced and subtracted into your mind. Let God be God. This, this is what God says. Let me be who I am. Don't reduce me. I am greater than you. Worship me. But you know what? We're going to spend eternity learning more about God. Our minds are going to expand quite a bit in eternity. Don't reduce him to our limitations. You know, when you turn from all your gods and all your idols to the one and only, you feel limited. You feel restricted. You feel really just that one? Yes. And our, our world today really harps against Christianity because they think they have the answer, the one God amongst all the other options in our world. And you know what? The Bible doesn't preach it any differently. The gospel's always proclaimed inclusively, whosoever will, 
everyone who believes, anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But it's also very specific. Jesus. You only come to the Father through the Son, Jesus. And it was a decisive turning to God from idols. I want to put down the anchor here because I believe there's a lure and a power in each of our lives of an idol. An idol says to us, if you say this, if you buy this, if you, if you eat this, if you do this, you're going to have good luck. You're going to have success. You're going to have special abilities over the people around your life. You're going to have the edge. If you don't believe this, look at Major League Baseball. What does a batter do before they get up to bat? <laughs> rub the bat and rub the back of their head. They've done it since grade school, and they still do it. It's superstitious. Look at how a football player does, celebrates when he gets done, you know. Look at how great I am. Some of them lift their hand to heaven, but most of them are in superstition. We do this. We do this. I've even talked to Christians who have little superstitions before they present a deal in in the business world or what. Folks, we've got to turn away from those. There's overt gods, gods we buy or drive or live in or consume. And there's covert gods, the God of image or success or comfort or cool, or pleasure, or appearance, or acceptance, or applause. And boy, if you follow Jesus, you know the gods of your life. You know the options that you have. And when you're distracted from Jesus, those idols move right back in. But the power of an idol is perhaps most clear when you turn away. When you turn away from an idol to the one and true God. Because you see the value you've placed on it, and you feel the void of it in your lives. There's three areas where you're going to feel the void of, a, of an idol. It's your checkbook, it's your calendar, and it's your concerns. Those three C's of an idol, I think are important. I, I'm not going to do it, but if you could show me your checkbook, whether online or, or in, uh, you know, written form, I could probably, as I looked at how money flowed through your life, I could probably say, this is really important to you. Why? Because the things we want to do, we find the money for. We just do. We do. And we have no problem changing and, and curtailing or redirecting resources to the things we want to do. If I really saw what was important, I'd also look at your calendar. And like I said, I'm not going to be doing that this morning, so everyone exhale. But if I did look at your calendar, I would see what's important to you. And finally, if I could read your mind, which I can't, but God can... He would see, what are you worried about? What are you most concerned about? What do you spend most of your time processing in your mind? See, those three areas, when you turn to the one and true living God, you feel like you're losing something. I've never talked to anyone who walked away from an idol who gone, oh, I just, boy, this is just the greatest experience in my life. No, you're kind of tugged by and directed by an idol. So you're going to feel like you're going to subtract. But here's what Paul does. He does, just doesn't call you to God. He calls you to serve. And that's the second thing. That's a mark of receiving the gospel. That you move from idols to God and to serve. To serve. And when you serve the living and true God, look out. Your life will multiply. But before, if you just turn ideologically to God and trust in the gospel, but you don't turn your life over where you're serving the living and true God, look out. See, when you see, receive the gospel, you are called a doulos. And that's the Greek word for servant. 
And you follow him. You follow his word and you follow his way. And instead of serving as an obligation, you begin to learn how to serve God because you love him. You be, instead of serving yourself, which is vanity, you tend to serve others and, and allow his love to move from your life into others. But sometimes we start slowly. Some of us are children in this and we just love the addiction to candy and we need a godly parent to come into our lives. A godly person. That's why if you're a new follower, you need godly people around you who followed Christ who can say that stuff is going to rot your teeth. That stuff is not going to sustain you. It's just going to put you on a sugar high that's going to bring you back to the same place in a few days. Some of us are adolescents with money where we're just spending it at all. If we haven't spent it and we need people in our lives who can help us redirect the resources God has given us who are godly people. Some of us are have known Christ for a while, but we're still trying to be someone we shouldn't or trying. This is the real killer for me, trying not to be someone I don't want to be. I've seen that. And that's why we have to turn from those to an aligned vision. So you may not have turned, you may have turned to God, but may have not have turned yet to serving. And therefore you feel like you don't have any appetite or passion for serving. So every time we present an opportunity for you to serve, you go, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. Well, you're never going to get that passion and appetite by sitting and watching God. That's why one of the greatest ways for you to grow in your walk with God is for you to serve the living and true God. For you to actually serve him by loving the people around you and advancing the gospel through your life. And that's why if I could just trace the faith development of my children, the things that my children went from, from this is dad's faith, I'm a pastor's kid, and this is what I do on a Sunday, to move them to this is my faith and this is what I get to do and this is what God's been doing in my life, it's through serving. It started with Super Kids Super Camp. It moved to Camp Barnabas. It went on Dominican Republic mission trips. It, it, it served by reaching friends and identifying friends they could serve the gospel to as they went to school. It, it, it continued with um, things like the mountain and being involved in mountain or leading, the wor- leading worship or whatever it is. It's when they went outside of themselves that they actually started owning because that's exactly faith is meant, meant to be experienced with God, not just watched, not just to be passive with, but to be an active serving of the living and true God. And then look at this third thing, an expectant waiting for Jesus. Paul says that, that you, you wait to wait for his son, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So they waited for deliverance in the midst of affliction and suffering. Boy, that would be really hard. We live in a day and age. This year has been perhaps one of the worst years for Christian martyrs in the world. More martyrs for Christianity this year than perhaps any other year in the history of Christianity. Now, we, don't, we may not experience that, but boy, it would be easy to go, doggone it, God, these people turned over their lives to you, and look at that, you killed them. It's easy, I hear people say that. But here, this group trusted and they waited for deliverance. They waited for justice. They waited for complete restoration. And I like this balance that Paul talks about in receiving, receiving faith. That... You're actively serving and advancing the gospel, but you're also patiently waiting. You're trusting God to complete what you cannot. 
You know, as you get involved in, in ministry, there's going to be things that you are a part of change and transformation. There's going to be other parts where you can't make those changes. It just doesn't happen. There's going to be people who reject the gospel, people who are resistant to the gospel, people who are against the gospel. And you're going to have to go, wow, oh, Lord, what do I do now? Am I a failure? And he goes, no, you're not a failure. Just wait. Just wait. You share the gospel with someone and they reject you? Just not yet. They're not ready yet. Trust God with them. A patiently await. There's going to be injustice in this world. And instead of inciting a mob, Christians are called to advance the gospel and wait patiently. Like Peter says, the patience of the, of the Lord leads to repentance. Right now, until he returns, he's patiently waiting for, for God is patiently waiting for people to respond to the gospel. Church, advance the gospel as you patiently wait. Faith is remembered here. Faith is reflected. Faith is received. I have three final questions. And I'd just like you to look up here because I think it's important we ask them based on what we're called to. First one is this. As the church in Thessalonica was remembered as a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness of hope, what will you be remembered by? What will be remembered by your life? It's a good question to ask because I think people will only catch three words from your life. You can go, oh, Joe, I don't want to be reduced down to three words. And I know you don't, neither do I, but people are only going to remember three. What are going to be your three? The church in Thessalonica, faith, love, and hope. So I look around this room, I see people, and I know many of you, but not everyone, but I know, I know that, that there are many in this room who, we could say that, we are people of faith, we are people of love, we are people of hope. And boy, aren't our lives better? Don't we want to return to a place like this with people like this who have that? But what would, if you're in middle school, what would fellow students say about you? Do you, do you reflect any values? What about high school, college what would your roommates say about you? What would your family say about you? People who work around you, people who live around you, they're going to describe you. By the way, they already do. When someone comes over to their house, hey, what do you know about the guy next to you? Well, he's a, they'll, they'll give you usually three words. Sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not. What do you want your words to be? And are you intentionally focused on those words? Because if you're not intentional, those words just don't happen. We're called as Christ followers, as the church, to have as our pillars faith, love, and hope. Second question. If the gospel of Christ came to us and is in us and is to be meant to move from us, then what is, how is the gospel being reflected from your life? I mentioned how it reverberated to the whole world because of their faith and because the gospel took root in them. But let me just ask you this. How is the gospel moving from you? I know a lot of Christians, and I know very intelligent and learned Christians on the word of God. But I'm not hearing a lot of stories of how the gospel is moving from their lives. And I'm not talking about, I love this person to Christ and this person, this person. Here's this whole thing that we just celebrate up here on stage. I'm just talking about, is there a consistent pattern of stories of 
I've identified these two people in my life who don't know Christ. I'm praying for these people who don't know Christ. I'm sharing. This is how I'm sharing the gospel with them. Or pray for them. I planted a seed by just sharing the gospel with them. We aren't sharing it, folks. And, and therefore, we're short, short-circuiting the movement of the gospel in our generation. And so we need to all be redirected. How is that gospel doing that? That's why we, that's why we have you and two here. Where there's two people in your life who don't know Christ. Where we always have you thinking about that and praying for them. And even writing their names on the foundation of our future worship center. Because we by faith are asking God to use us to sound the gospel through our lives. Last question. If faith is received by turning and serving and waiting. Then then are these marks evident in my life? Is there that practice of turning from idols? Is there a sustained pattern of your life of turning from idols to God? I think about this. One of my idols has been um, acceptance. I just love to be liked. And when I haven't been liked, boy, my heart rate goes up. I toss and turn at night. And I've had to learn over time that my life is not here to please men. My life is here to please God. And that truth transformed my life. So I'm no longer here. I'm no longer motivated by what do people think of me. I'm much more redirected to what does God have for me and how can I please him today. That was huge. And that's a mark in my life. I can go back to multiple failures on that, but then I could go to the time where God finally... Uh, and, and could I go back there? Absolutely, when I take my eyes off Jesus. But, but right now, I'm trusting. Are those marks? Secondly, a practice of serving the true and living God. Do I have a sustained pattern of redirecting the sor- resources God has entrusted to me from dead and dying things to living and eternal things? I mean, so much of our checkbook, our calendar, and our concerns are around things that are dead or dying. And, and we're so concerned with that. Is there that pattern of serving the living and true God in my life with the resources, facilities, everything he's given me? And finally, is there that pattern of waiting? Waiting for his son Jesus in my life. Now, obviously, that's not a passive thing, but it's a, it's a confident thing. Because when I see injustice in the world or something doesn't make sense or I can't change someone or something, I get ticked and I want to control it and I want to be discontent with it until it's changed and up to my standards. And I can be impulsive. I can incite a mob if I'm not careful. I can be anxious. I can worry. I can fear. And God says, Joe, not yet on that. Not yet on that. Be patient. I'm at work. I'm living. I'm true. Trust me, because we can be really, really skittish when we look at the world around us and we don't see things changing. We can be upset with people around us who aren't changing the way we want them to change. And we have to be willing to be patient, waiting for his son, Jesus, our deliverer, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We wait. We serve. We turn. These are the marks of a faith that is received. Are they in you? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for uh, Paul, who is willing to go and to bring the gospel to this church. And we thank you for everyone you provided in our lives, people who came to us, that the gospel might be in us through your power of your Holy Spirit. And now, may we be a church who willingly and joyfully turns from idols to serve the one and true living God as we wait for his son, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's in his name we pray. Amen.